this should be fun. Stoning, death, bloodshed. You guys up for that? Well, let me give you a little bit of an intro to see where we're going to go with this. Yesterday morning, I had the blessing and honor to watch my three children compete at Taekwondo, uh, a tournament down in uh, an area near Eugene. And at first, it was complete and utter chaos. Uh, trying to get checked in and find the location and ring for each age group and belt level, I was thankful that my wife had her wits about her because I was totally lost, even as an ex-athlete that was used to these things. Uh, but then the gentleman that was running and leading the event took the mic and he stood up before everyone and it was unreal. Hundreds of competitors were instructed to run out and find their spot. And my children weren't taught beforehand where they were going to go. And something switched as this was going on, and there was a loud, ordered clap. Each of the participants knew the routine of when to bow, when to speak, what to say, and so on. An amazingly well-ordered symphony of movement, and it ended like this. Everyone sitting perfectly in place. And guys, as a guy who pastors in front of a church of, you know, roughly 200 people with kids in it, I must tell you that not a child was really moving all that much. I wanted to go ask the grandmaster how they did it so we could figure out how to do it during service. And being in the midst of preparing for this section on leadership and on following leaders that we're looking at in Deuteronomy, I immediately thought, how are they doing this? It's one of the curses of being a pastor. You're constantly thinking about the next sermon and anything that happens in front of you, you draw into the sermon. So I thought, how are they doing this? How are they ordering this? Well, then they went through the leadership of the tournament and the grandmasters and the ninth degree black belt and this small guy from Korea that supposedly can kill you with his pinky, and he's like the Grandmaster Poobah. And I started to understand that there was something going on there. There was something going on between the higher belt levels and the lower belt levels. And then they repeated their oath of competition, which clearly stated their respect for those above them in rank and those below them in rank. And each competitor wanted to please their coach and their master, and each master wanted to please the Taekwondo master above them, and it led to this beautiful symphony of hard work, mutual respect, and honor. And quite honestly, guys, it made me want to be a part of it. It was endearing. It made me think, man, the respect these guys show, we Christians could learn something. In the midst of all this, my thoughts were taken back to this section of text in Deuteronomy that I've been prepping for and pouring over all week. And, and uh, obviously, it made me change my intro. But... What we're looking at today is the beginning of a section in which Moses will speak to the people of Israel about their leadership structure. And within this section that we will be spending the next couple of weeks in, Moses is going to show us two very important pieces that will make this system work. And it's very much like what I saw yesterday. It's this. Uh, first, there must be appointed leaders that lead and judge in a way in which they are motivated and activated by the heart and character of God, and that alone. And secondly, there must be a consensus and a like-mindedness among God's people that they will submit to the leaders that are put before them so long as the leaders are operating within the confines of God's character and his definition of justice. And so what we'll be discussing this morning in this section in Deuteronomy 16 and 17 is the idea of this, leading and following in an obedient church. Leading and following in an obedient church. Now, I know that in our individualistic, autonomous, have-it-your-way-right-away, iPad, iPhone, iMac culture, I might have already lost some of you. We live in a culture that is individualistic, and we are the king of our own kingdom. And this is probably especially the case, given our current climate of political figures, our current climate of religious figures, and just the general authority figures run amok and abuse that surround us. But dear church, before we even step into our text today, I must remind you that the solution for misuse is not, not ever disuse, it's correct use. The solution for disuse is never misuse, or sorry, the solution for misuse is never disuse, it's correct use. Just because you have experienced harm at the hands of an authority figure, or you have seen it happen to someone else, or you watch it on the news, does not mean the solution is to remove all authority. So let's see what God's word has to say, and let's begin by looking at where we left off last Easter, or last Sunday at Easter, in Deuteronomy 16. 
We start kind of in the middle of this train of thought, but it's a great place to start. It says, three times a year, your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. And then he states these various festivals, and he says, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. And what we're reminded of right away here out of verses 16 and 17 is this. You can write it down this morning. The first point, God's true people are his people because they desire to be under his authority. God's true people are his people because they desire to be under his authority. And you might say, Hans, how do you get that out of this? This is just talking about festivals. Well, the language of this summary statement at the end of chapters uh, 14, 15, and 16 is so easily missed in our very logistically minded American culture. We think, oh, it's talking about festivals here, but the festivals were part of a greater statement. What it's really speaking to is the idea of proper submission to a benevolent king. Remember that we need to read Deuteronomy through what is called a suzerain treaty. A suzerain treaty. We've gone over this a few times before. If you're a visitor, you're like, what is he even talking about? And who is this Susie, right? A suzerain treaty is a treaty that was very common in the ancient Near East. And within that treaty, you had two parties. You had the suzerain and you had the vassal. Okay, I know these are words we don't use anymore, but let me give you a quick history lesson. The suzerain was the sovereign king who had gone and he had gone into a kingdom that wasn't his own and he had uh, crushed them, (laughs) defeated them, and he had taken over. But he wants to be a benevolent sovereign king to them and so he calls them his citizens under his rule. And there becomes this, this covenant that gets put in place. And usually what would occur is because that king was off in a foreign land, he would put another leader who was his sub-regent, his sub-king, in place over that vassal, and that would be the vassal ruler. If you read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you see this all over the place, uh, that there are leaders of Israel that are put in place by the, their enemies, by Babylon and by Assyria, okay? I love, by the way, that those of you who are college students, I see you with your pens and paper. I, I love that. Older people, we can learn from that. So the suzerain treaty is in place. And part and parcel to this idea is that the two parties would operate within this covenant relationship. A vassal state would commit to things. The suzerain would commit to things. The suzerain would commit to the fact that he was going to protect and watch over and care for and provide for this small kingdom within his larger kingdom. The vassal state would then save up a tribute of their income, usually in the form of a portion of their harvest or their treasures, and they would bring that on a regular basis to the king at the center of his kingdom, usually in his castle, uh, which is where his authority and his name were centered to show that they were indeed submitted to his benevolent reign. As I've said before, as Americans, we get a bad taste in our mouths when we hear this. We are indeed the country who destroyed a monarchy in order to get freedom. Why on earth would we go back to this idea? And this is why American Christianity has been infused with this massive idea of individualism that we each have the Holy Spirit in us, so we each get to make our own opinions, and it doesn't matter what our church leaders say because, well, I have the Holy Spirit in me, so I'm the king of my own kingdom. That is a deeply American cultural ideal. You find it nowhere in Scripture. The reality is, is that we have to listen to Scripture and say, what is Scripture saying? Well, the Scripture is saying that the king in this case is God. He's the good father who is benevolent and merciful and gracious. Is it a good idea to submit to him? Absolutely. And so from 1422 on through our current section here, we've been looking at the system of tribute to the king of Israel, Yahweh himself. In 1422 through 29, it spoke of the tribute of tithes to our king. And I asked you the question, with your money, with your tithing, is Jesus your king? Or have you figured out a way where you can be the king of your own kingdom? In 15.1 through 15.23, we spoke of the view that God had of righteousness and justice and the need to live in a kingdom of mercy and reconciliation and restoration. And that kicked off chapter 16 into this calendar upon which the people of Israel based their time so that they could bring tribute to the king at the appropriate time. Their time, their talents, their treasure, all used to pay tribute to their king, Yahweh, as commanded by himself, he himself. Unfortunately, the rest of the Old Testament is a narrative that paints a stark picture that the majority of the people of God, his chosen people, blatantly refused to live in submission to him. 
In fact, they made up for themselves gods that they could rule over. They manufactured God in a way in their own heads where it made sense that they could rule over him. Does that sound familiar at all in the Western evangelical culture? Where we twist and contort the idea of who Jesus is to be my personal savior, who's in my heart, and I get to rule over? It actually is, but it's totally foreign to the Bible. And so then they put kings and queens in place that mirrored their own depraved, wicked, and greedy heart. And the people knew that they were done for because just as a good suzerain would do, when they refused to submit to him tribute of their lives, God removed his hand of protection from them, and they were overrun and taken into exile by their enemies. And the people cried out to God in the midst of that oppression. This is the story of the Old Testament. The amazing part about the king that they serve and the God that we serve is that God heard their cry and said to them, dear children, I will send one who will come in my name and be king on my behalf on the earth and he will be my anointed one. He will save you, not only from your enemies, but from the enemy within. In Hebrew, this idea of the anointed one is the word Mashiach, where we get Messiah. In Greek, it is Christos or Christ. You can't say Jesus Christ and leave out the idea of king because you are literally saying Jesus, the anointed king. Christ is not his last name. And so in the midst of the prophets, there is a constant theme that God will send his anointed king to save his people through victory over their enemies, including the enemy of sin and death. And so we have verses like this from Isaiah 9, which many of you should be very familiar with. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government. And we're not talking about the liberal democratic view or the conservative Republican view. His rulership, the increase of his rule and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is an easily recognized set of verses we read at Christmas, but this was not manufactured by Hallmark for nice religious cards. This is a statement, a proclamation that one day God would be enthroned over his people and destroy their enemies. This is one of hundreds of similar statements in scripture. And so God's people waited and waited, wondering when this warrior king would arrive to save them from oppression. Now, I have to pause for a moment because in my time pastoring, when I preached about Jesus as king, I've made so many people angry. I've had people come up to me furious that I've turned their savior into a king. That's a direct quote from somebody who used to go to this church. You've turned my savior into a king. How dare you? This idea in evangelical culture that Jesus is your savior without being your king is all over the place. And it can't be the case, folks. He is not your savior if he is not also your king. And so God's people waited. Waited for this anointed king. When you guys know the story, eventually a man named Jesus from Nazareth showed up on the scene, and in the midst of his ministry, he showed himself to be a perfect reflection of God the Father. And those that were his began to grasp that he was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed king of God's people that was promised all the way from the beginning of the Bible. Look at some of these verses with me in the Gospels. And I don't know about you guys, but when I used to read the Gospels, I would fast forward through most of it trying to find the place where it would comfort me about my salvation. But see, that's not the gospel. The gospel is proclaiming him as king. Look, look at these, some of these with me. I'm just going to give you a few. This is Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Meaning himself. Because as we'll see in a second, he described himself as the Son of Man. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the, what's the word there? The Christ. What does Christ mean? The anointed king, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now guys, 
if you said this to someone, you're a king, and they were wrong, what would you say to them? Easy on the meds there, buddy. What, what is happening, right? No, he accepts it. Yep, you're right. Blessed are you, okay? Peter calls Jesus the Christ, and Jesus responds with, you're right. <laughs> Good job. Look at Mark 14, the gospel of Mark. This is towards the end, right before his crucifixion. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the, what's that word there? Christ, the anointed king, the son of the blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Oh, it's so nice. He got poetic. No, it's not just poetry, guys. The high priest tore his garments. He was so angry. What further witness do we need? Crucify him, basically. Well, what was it that he was being so horrific about that needed caused the Pharisees to tear their robe? Well, what he was doing was he was pulling from the book of Daniel, a prophecy that stated that a king would come in the reign of God and would destroy all other kingdoms, and that king would rise above all others. This is the passage in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Daniel had just seen all these visions of all the kingdoms of the earth that walk in darkness and go against God. And then he says this, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, uh, with heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, Yahweh, and was presented before him. And to him, uh, this new figure, this son of man that Jesus fulfills was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Does that have anything to do with your salvation? The answer is no. Salvation is an offshoot of this. It's an outcome of this. But this is what the gospel is, that a king has come and is reigning. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus said clearly to this Pharisee, I'm the king. Then after his resurrection, here's Acts chapter 1. I know I'm going through a lot of scripture here, but this is important. And I'm just giving you guys like such a snapshot. So when they had come together, this is after his resurrection, he'd been on the earth for 40 days. His disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight. Now, what's interesting about this is we, as evangelical Western Christians, take this and, and think what he's saying here is, go tell everyone that their salvation has been accomplished. What is the message that we're supposed to take to the ends of the earth in context? That the kingdom has come and there's a king. Oh, and by the way, as part of that, the king conquered the, dark, the, the kingdom of darkness and pulled you out of it and took your place on the cross. That is the secondary piece to the greater piece of the fact that the kingdom has come. We don't wipe one away for the sake of the other, but we prioritize them correctly. Everyone expected the messianic reign to begin, but Jesus said, no, the first thing you need to do is go to the ends of the earth and state this good news. I have risen victorious over sin, death, and hell. I am the Christ, the king of the inaugurated kingdom that is here but not yet. Dear church, this is the good news. So what about the fact that Jesus died to save me from my sin? Well, the gospel is certainly not less than that. But dear brothers and sisters, that is part of the greater story of good news, that the king has finally come and his kingdom reign will ultimately occur in fullness and we sit in the in-between stage. The gospel is certainly that you are saved from your sin, that Jesus died in your place on the cross and became sin for us. That is certainly the gospel, but it is part of the greater Amazing story that Jesus is now king. And this is why our salvation is viewed as a transition from submission under the authority of the adversary, the kingdom of darkness, to submission under Christ's authority. Look at Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He, Jesus, or sorry, the Father, has delivered us from the domain, guys, that's a kingdom word, of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See what the priority is there? The transition in kingdoms and rulership 
than the statement that our sins are forgiven because we're in the midst of his kingdom. And so now, as part of our evangelical proclamation that Jesus is king, we are called to go into all the world and raise up believers that are obedient to Christ as king. My heart breaks when I hear evangelical presentations that say, Jesus died for your sins, you can follow him as savior, isn't that great? I'm always waiting, like, and? <laughs> what, is it, what does it look like to follow him? Well, to be a citizen underneath a king. Look at what Paul says that the whole point of the church is to be. I shared this with you when we went through Romans. He uses it as a bookend to his entire book, the book that I would hold up to you as the model of the statement of the gospel and the work of Christ, Romans, that has been held up by reformers ever since the Protestant Reformation. Look at what Paul says. Paul, a servant of Christ, the anointed king, Jesus, called to be an apostle, sent out on his behalf, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. Okay, great, he's going to tell us what it is. It's concerning his son who was descended from David, notice the royal lineage, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, that's a kingdom statement, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, the anointed king, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. For what purpose, guys? Read that out loud. To bring about the obedience of faith. What an odd statement. I thought faith was me just believing that Jesus was my savior. No, to bring about the obedience of faith, faithfulness as in covenant, for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is a conquering statement. Notice how he ends the book of Romans. This is the doxology at the end. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God to be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. Do you think obedience to a king is part of the Christian walk? Have I hammered this into the ground and broken it off for you? And notice, guys, I've only given you a few verses here. Jesus is our Christ. He is our king that reigns at the right hand of the Father. And to declare that he is your Lord means that you declare he is your king. And if king, then he is to be obeyed. And that obedience does not mean perfection or lack of sin. It means that when you or I sin, we walk in repentant humility, recommitting to submission to his rule and reign in li our lives when conviction comes. Even when our feelings and fleshly desires draw us elsewhere for a moment, at the point of conviction, when a brother or sister comes to us, I want to underline this for you. The Christian always desires to give their lives as a tribute to their king. Amen? It's not that you won't sin. We all sin. It's that when that conviction comes, you bow the knee again. You stop standing in prideful authority in your own life and you bow the knee again. If you are a visitor here today and you're not a follower of Christ, then I want to tell you the gospel. One day, there will come a judgment day where a king will sit on a throne and he will look as to your life and my life and he will say, who did you follow? Who did you submit to? Was it yourself and the kingdom of darkness or was it me? And this is so promised that a man showed up 2,000 years ago, died and rose again, proving that he would be that judge and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Do you really want to gamble with standing before him after having lived a life for yourself? A logical and smart answer would be, no, I don't. But the prideful answer would be, I don't care. And you will have tons of fun in this life, I guarantee you. But the question is, is that worth an eternity away from your creator, the one that loves you and has given his life for you? If you're not a believer in here this morning, I would suggest that today is the day of your salvation. It is time to bow the knee to Jesus because he is a good and benevolent and loving king. He showed it by dying on the cross in your place and mine, taking our sin so that we might be reconciled to the Father God. Today is the day of your salvation. If you want to talk about what it is to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I would love to talk with you. Patrick would love to talk with you in the back after service.
while God's people are only his people because they desire to be under his authority. And now that we see this concretely established, and I've probably gone (laughs) even farther than I needed to in order to prove it to you, let's go back to Deuteronomy and see what's next in this odd section here in Deuteronomy 16, 18. Right out of this idea of tribute to the king, Moses moves in and says this in verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. They shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow. In the Hebrew, it's mishpat, mishpat. Justice, justice. It's an emphasis. You shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And here we see the second point this morning. God requires leaders to lead his people in justice and righteousness. God requires leaders to lead his people in justice and righteousness. This is very much within the idea of a suzerain treaty. Remember, you have a suzerain, a vassal, and then you have a vassal ruler, somebody that's put in place by the suzerain to help lead the people. And so God requires leaders to lead his people in justice and righteousness. He did for the Jews, and as I'll show you, he does for the church. We worship a God who we cannot see, but yet we know exists. And it is extremely difficult to interact with a being who does not speak audibly to us and is not materially in front of us and cannot physically comfort us. And that's why very aberrant theology has been grown out of uh, Christianity um, in the last 200 years where, you know, I just feel Jesus comforting me right now. Well, yeah, maybe that, that could be true by his Holy Spirit, but as we see in the Word, what we see in the Bible is that God likes to work incarnationally. He likes to step into the flesh. For example, he speaks through the prophets, humans. He rules through judges, kings, prophets, priests, elders, humans. When he wanted to show himself as king, he came in the form of the Son, human and yet fully God. And what we see in Acts and the epistles is that God works through his body, the church, humans. What you see Paul say is not, hey, stand there and wait for the Holy Spirit to comfort you. What does he say in all of his epistles? comfort one another. He doesn't stand there and say, wait for the Holy Spirit to tell you you, you, that you're loved. What does he say? Love one another. He doesn't say, wait for a voice from heaven to convict you. What does he say? Submit to your leaders, (laughs) right? He works incarnationally. And I know some of you struggle with that, but trust me, it's there in the New Testament. And so when God wanted to lead a people to be his people, a people of justice, he installs leadership roles. And the word here, uh, you shall appoint judges and officers, in the, in the wooden Hebrew, it's actually, you shall make judging officers. And they're to be righteous, refusing to pervert justice. And in this next section of text from verse 18 um, all the way into um, 1821, that we'll cover over the next few weeks, Moses will be giving the people the laws surrounding their various leaders and what those leaders should be like. He's going to talk about priests and judges, kings. And prophets. And what this text we just read us tells us is that they had one purpose, to enact justice and only justice within the midst of the people. This is the whole reason that God chose Abraham so that his offspring um, and the true offspring of faith, like Abraham, would be a people that show God's heart of righteousness and justice. You remember this from Genesis 18, 19? I've shared this with you guys a lot. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I would love to go into a large review of what righteousness and justice are, but I don't have time. So I simply want to remind you of this. Righteousness is right relationship between God, his creation, each other, and self. Justice is the action that brings about that right relationship. And this is a restorative justice, not a justice that simply deals with retributive justice as we do in the West where we lock someone up. It is a justice that makes things right again, that leads to fullness of redemption and reconciliation. A righteousness that puts back together into shalom the things that God intended. And so the job of the leaders within God's people is to bring about reconciliation and peace through judgments that are just and right. And so Moses now goes on to outline what good leaders will do for God's people, and this is the rest of the section. 
So let's first look at Deuteronomy 16, 21. First, what we'll see here is that they will be leaders. You can write this down. They will be leaders who wholeheartedly submit to the covenant with God. I don't have these up on the screen. I'll just say them to you. They will be leaders that will wholeheartedly submit to the covenant with God. The way they'll do this is they'll make sure that no idolatry is found in their own lives or in the lives of those that they watch over. This is verse 21. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and he has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. In other words, they're supposed to step in and figure out whether or not idolatry is in their midst. And so the second thing that those good leaders will do is as the book of James will do, it says that they are to be slow to speak and quick to listen. They'll inquire. They won't just come and jam a judgment down the throat. And I have to admit, this has been my mentality for many of my years. I grew up in a very authoritarian home. I was a basketball player. And I thought good leaders came and just kind of wedged things in place. But that's not the truth at all. Good biblical leaders will inquire. They will ask the questions. They will see what's going on. And we see this here. They're supposed to go inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stone. That does not sound pleasant. The third thing they will do is they will not, as it was said earlier, do things based on their own opinions or perceptions or out of their own greed. But they will judge in a way that is impartial and righteous. They'll go inquire, they'll figure out what's going on, and then there are, there are given these statements and ways and methods to act out their judgment in a way that is truly impartial. Take a look at verse 6 there. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. Never on the evidence of one. A person shall be put, not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So the charge, first of all, has to be based on the evidence of multiple witnesses. I've been a Christian long enough that, man, charges get thrown around and people convict one another without any trial or jury all the time in the church. Have you guys seen this? Especially some of you who are older in the church? Yeah, we, we start gossip, we start talking about things, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden somebody is known to be this evil person when one person has that opinion. It is a great evil in the church because we don't follow the idea of, wait a minute, are there multiple people that think this? And one of the big problems in the church is when a person starts to become the spokesperson for all the rest of the people because of their opinion. And it turns into this weird triangulation mess. And so there needs to be multiple witnesses. Well, next, the judging officers will have the accusers stand before the entire body. I think this would kill gossip pretty quick in the church, don't you? Oh, so-and-so, uh, Fred, said that uh, Frank is a big jerk. Um, Fred, why don't you come before the entire body during a membership meeting and spell out the accusations you have against Frank? I guarantee you there would be zero accusation happening in that church. They're supposed to be the ones that are supposed to convict them in front of the body, and they're supposed to be the ones that throw the first stone. In other words, you'd have the two or three witnesses start the stone-throwing. And if a person were falsely accusing someone, this is a pretty heavy step to take. And they're basing this off the idea that you are a follower of Yahweh in covenant with him. Are you sure that you want to be the person accusing right off the bat? It assures that they're accusing for just reasons. And then lastly, the entire body of God's people would need to be united that this person that did evil and was unrepentant about it, they needed to die. So they would collectively work as a congregational authority to purge the unrepentant person from their midst. So you'd have the witnesses step up, throw the first stones, which were probably pretty small and would probably hurt pretty bad. And then the way that they died was the entire congregation would pile them with stones. This sounds awful, does it not? But there's a reason for it. Look at the last piece. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. 
if there was lack of repentance, this person was not properly representing Yahweh. And it was the job of the people to deal with the witness of the Israelites. But as you know, in most cases of sin and brokenness in God's people, it is not clean or easy like that. It's not like this person's right and that person's wrong. Most of us have gone through conflict in our lives and we recognize that both parties are usually at fault in some way. Even in the case of abuse, where it's never the, the abused victim's fault, sometimes the fault that they hold is that they're not stepping out of the abusive relationship when given the chance. And so there's always the question of what's going on and is it clean or easy? We're all human, and sometimes two parties are both at fault and in disagreement. So in that case, Moses says this. He says, we're going to put priests and judges in place. Take a look there with me at verse 8. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, see, the Israelites, they weren't clean. They were very messy. Or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priest and to the judge who is in the office in those days. And you shall consult them and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Put simply, when a case couldn't be figured out by a local tribal elder, the parties in conflict were to go to the priests and the judges in office and tell them the situation. And then the priest or judge was to issue a statement on what would lead to justice, and they were to follow it. They were to issue a statement on what would lead to reconciliation so that the proclamation of the witness of Israel could be maintained, so that the holiness of the people of Israel could be maintained. Why did this matter? Well, guys, remember all of Deuteronomy so far. He's lifting them up as a people that could be looked at by the worlds to say, nobody has a God as good as your God. Nobody has a God as just as your God. Nobody has a God as righteous as your God, and we see it in you, the people. And so if they couldn't maintain this witness because they couldn't get over the conflict that was in their midst, they were ruining their gospel witness that Yahweh is a good God. It was God's requirement of his people that they were to listen to the priest and the judge without acting presumptuously in disobedience. God required his leaders to lead his people in justice towards righteousness, and he required his people to follow and submit to their lead. Dear church, would you say it is a good thing that God has seen fit to remove public stonings from the New Testament? I would. I think it's a very good thing. Because I guarantee you I'd be buried under a pile of rocks by now. And so would many of you. I know, I'm your pastor. The reality is, is I'm really glad for that. But does that mean that we throw out the entire thing and this section means nothing to us? No. Because God's requirement of his people has not changed all that much. We act it out in different ways, but I think that when we look at the New Testament church, what we find is this. There's my third point. God still requires leaders to lead his people in justice and righteousness. Still. At first glance, this section of Deuteronomy seems so unlikely in its applicability to you and I in the New Covenant in 2019, man, why on earth would we even read this? Let's just tear this page out of our Bibles and move on. But all Scripture is profitable and useful for instruction in righteousness. We said at the end of this reading, thanks be to God for this section of Scripture. What I want to submit to you this morning is that this view of leadership, and yes, I'm going to use the words membership and congregational authority, that was used in the Old Testament is the same thing that Jesus, Peter, and Paul actually pull into the New Testament. Look with me quickly at a few different places. Go with me to Matthew 18. Starting in verse 15. Give me an amen when you're there. It says, if your brother sins against you, is that going to happen in the church, guys? Yeah. So is it that good Christians don't sin? No, of course not. 
<laughs> this is the New Testament. We all sin. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, underline, highlight, circle, staple, do whatever you need to do, the word listen. Conflict never gets resolved unless both parties listen to each other and hear the hurt, whether or not you agree with it. Listen to you. You have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Two or three witnesses? I wonder where he gets that from. Anybody got any guesses? Deuteronomy. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This word ekklesia, it is very much attached to the uh, word in the Hebrew that speaks of the congregation or assembly of Israel. That's where they get the idea of the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, one who is not in the covenant people of God. Kick him out of the covenant. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, for a prayer circle, there I am as well. Now, guys, next time somebody uses that in the midst of a prayer circle, stop them and say, let's go back to Deuteronomy and read where this actually comes from. It deals with stoning. So if we want to start stoning someone, let's use it in the appropriate context. <laughs> Hate it when people use that verse out of context. It's speaking of discipline in the church. This is what we would formally call church discipline. Someone sins in the body against another member. I'll give you a great example. I bark at my kids because they're part of the covenant family. My sister in Christ, a wonderful woman by the name of Kelly, my wife, comes to me and says, <clears throat> How'd that go for you? And I go, not good. And she says, what do you think you need to do? And I go, I probably need to go talk to him. Church discipline has now been enacted. I've listened to my, my sister, and I've acted upon that discipline. Most church discipline happens right within your own home. This is what happens when sin is in the body against another member. They're to go to one another and reconcile. And if they can't for any reason, they are to go to a third party, most likely, as I will show you, an elder in the church, and aim for reconciliation. If they can't do that, then they are to go before the body of Christ, the congregation of God's people, and the body is to decide whether there is guilt or not. And if there is, and the party is unrepentant after begging them to repent, they are to cast them out of the congregation. Why? Because the inability of two parties who call themselves Christians to reconcile and the inability of the leaders to justly judge destroys the witness of the gospel of that church, period. And notice the statement of the binding and the loosing. This is old school speech, for whatever you judge will be affirmed by God's authority. And I would put an asterisk there, if it is done righteously and justly. Now watch this in action. Turn with me to the right to 1 Corinthians 5. Watch this in action. This is 1 Corinthians 5. The situation here is that this tiny little church, probably about our size, uh, maybe smaller, probably about 100 people, in the midst of the city of Corinth, there's a guy in that church having sexual relations with his stepmother. Yeah. So Paul is asked, what do we do about this by the elders of the church? And he writes back, most of 1 Corinthians is a response to their letters and their questions. And he says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you, he's saying to the church, you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, the idea of the assembly of God, the congregation, the church, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, his logic there is, we've got to kick him out of the congregation, because hopefully his attachment to you as a church will make him think twice about being arrogant and prideful, and will make him repent and step back into the community. And he's basically intimating that if that person stands in their in their you know, refusal to repent, 
then they're not a Christian and they're not going to be with the Lord. Their, their soul isn't going to be saved. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Most commentators agree what they were boasting about is look at how great we're loving this guy by leaving him in the midst of our body unrepentant. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, they're everywhere. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? Judge not, we say. How dare you judge me? It is our job to judge one another in the church. Not unrighteously, not unjustly, but justly, based upon the character of God. Why? Because God judges those outside. Notice his quote at the end there. Say it out loud with me. Purge the evil person from among you. Any guesses where he gets that from? Thank you, Deuteronomy. They were arrogant because they were not following God's requirement to judge righteously. They were showing partiality to this man who had previously sinned in the body. And what does Paul finish with? He finishes with purge the evil person from your midst. And it is the elders that are to be the ones to watch over this process. They are the first ones to lead the church and primarily Peter. Go back to Matthew 16 with me, guys, and look here. You can uh, go to Matthew 16, 17 through 19 or see it on the board. At the end of the section where he declares Jesus the Christ, he says, Peter, you're going to be the start of my church. Now, I disagree that he was the first pope. I think the Catholics rammed that into history. But I also disagree with many of my Protestant brothers who say, oh, yeah, he wasn't the first leader. No, he absolutely was. That's what this section is saying. Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, Petra, Petros, okay, if you go and look at the Greek, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You guys remember we read that a little bit earlier. The loosing and the binding. Where did that come from? That came from Matthew 18, where the church steps forward in its authority to cast out a person who's not repentant. The leaders of the church are to lead the church in rightly and justly judging when people are unrepentant. And so Peter passes that on to the elders he appoints in the church. This is what he says in 1 Peter 5. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe, yourself, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Remember what I said at the very beginning? An obedient church has leaders who lead justly and followers who follow justly. That's what Peter's saying here. This is why Paul also puts elders in place in Titus 1. He says, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It's really cool to say in Christianity, I think really over the last 50 years, but even in my generation, the church doesn't need leaders. Let's just all go to a house church and let's just love each other. Guys, you're tossing out a ton of the New Testament if you do that. A church is not a church unless it has leadership. And those leaders need to lead justly and righteously. Those overseers are the fathers of the church that help their kids deal with conflict. These elders were to be the judges and priests in the midst of the body who acted as rightly judging officials to help maintain the unity of the body, always pointing towards reconciliation when conflict arises. When we are in conflict and refuse to follow leaders that are trying to lead us in justice and righteousness, we make ourselves the authority. Our feelings become the sole judge and priest 
and they are never impartial, and we raise our feelings of needing to be right over the importance of the gospel witness that we supposedly proclaim. I love this quote from John Piper. He says, I have seen so much emotional blackmail in my ministry. I am jealous to raise a warning against it. Emotional blackmail happens when a person equates his or her emotional pain with another person's failure to love. They aren't the same. A person may love well and the beloved still feel hurt and use the hurt to blackmail the lover into admitting guilt he or she does not have. Emotional blackmail says, if I feel hurt by you, then you are guilty. There is no defense. The hurt person has become God. His emotion has become judge and jury. Truth does not matter. All that matters is the sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. It is above question. This emotional device is a great evil. And if you've been around the church long enough, this runs rampant. Well, so-and-so hurt me. Therefore, they are the evil person. And there is no willingness to sit down and reconcile and get it figured out. Guys, why is working out conflict so important? Why do I have such passion behind my words? Because just like a dad who watches my kids conflict with each other and not love each other, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart when I see husbands and wives not loving each other, children not respecting and loving their parents, parents not treating their children with honor but trying to be authoritarian over the top of them. It breaks my heart. This is not what the church is supposed to be, and we ruin our gospel witness because of it. I honestly was standing there amongst the Taekwondo people going, I think they have a better witness than we do. At least they answer each other in, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Thank you, ma'am. At least they're courteous. Oftentimes, when I step into the Taekwondo ring, there's more hospitality than I find in churches. How do we think that we are going to go to the world and say, come with us to follow a loving God, when when they show up, all they see is infighting, bickering, and dysfunction? Well, Hans, the church is full of hypocrites. Come be a hypocrite with us. Nobody will follow that gospel. That's bad news, not good news. Dear brothers and sisters, dear church, our evangelistic witness is nothing without reconciliation. If we proclaim good news that Jesus has become our king and he is king over an inaugurated kingdom, and we proclaim that that kingdom is full of his subjects that have been forgiven of their sin, then the world is rightly going to want proof that we are citizens of that kingdom submitted to the rule of our king. What does that look like, to be submitted to that rule? I love Paul's words in Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, when you get into conflict with another person, your job is not to stand on one side of the ring and them on the other and decide who's right. Your job is to go to them and bear their hurt, just like they are to come to you and bear, their, bear your hurt. And then the third party is to help you hear one another and walk through it and come to a place where you can reconcile so that when you do draw people to this place that is the home of Christ, They'll know that we are citizens of the king. To love one another as if you were loving Christ himself, that is how to live under his rule. You see, if we, are, if we say we are going to proclaim this truth with our lives, and then a person is drawn into our body because of our witness, and they walk in here on a Sunday and notice us stonewalling each other, not giving each other attention, or watching one another give silent treatment, or treating each other badly, or seeing divisions and cliques, it's ruined our witness. And it's not only ruined our witness, it's ruined the witness of probably every other Christian that they will ever meet. We bear a huge responsibility once we proclaim that we follow the king. Because everywhere we go, we have a sign on our forehead that says, Ambassador of the Kingdom of Jesus, the Anointed King. Have you guys ever had a salad or ordered food and you get it and you are so excited to eat it, you see the steam coming up from it, and when you dig in and you lift your fork up from that beautiful masterpiece, the food comes up, but then something is trailing, and it's a long hair that is stuck to the food and your fork, and you think to yourself, I want to simultaneously barf and send it back to the cook. Are you ready to dig into that food? No. 
Church, a, a church that proclaims a king of peace and reconciliation but cannot work towards reconciliation when conflict occurs is like that hair. Nobody wants any part of our gospel. And I believe this is why we, the worldwide church, have largely lost our witness. Churches are full of conflict that ends in people simply breaking relationship because they've become the judge and jury. And then they go to a church that will gladly accept them because they need more tithing units. And those elders never ask the people that show up if they left their last church in dysfunction. It's the, one of the primary questions we ask people who want to be members here because guess what? If you left your last church in dysfunction, I will most likely send you back to that church so that you make it right with your elders before coming here. If we do that, if we make it hard in the broader church culture to let dysfunction and unreconciled conflict occur, I guarantee you the witness of the church will grow in massive ways. You see, dear church, here's my last point. An obedient church has leaders who lead and members who follow injustice, all injustice. It is not that an obedient church will never have conflict. That is impossible. But it is that what it will have is leaders who deal with conflict justly and functionally without passive aggressiveness, without triangulation and gossip, and without partiality. But what an obedient church will have is elders who lead well in resolving conflict and members who are willing to reconcile no matter the cost, all for the glory of Christ. You see, when you get in a conflict with your spouse, your kids, your friend, another brother or sister in the church, your first shot, thought shouldn't be, how do I get them to agree that I was right? Your first thought should be, oh, bummer, our gospel witness is in trouble. How do we make sure that it is right? Look with me, for example, at the situation in the church of Philippi, a church that is totally commended by Paul for its example. This is Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul just kind of throws this in. I find this funny because, man, times have not changed much. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Oh, by the way, he says, <laughs> I entreat Eudoia and Synecdoche, these are two women in their church, to agree in the Lord. What's this mean? They were in conflict. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. And this wording in the Greek is potentially a proper name, or it means uh, yoke fellow, most likely another elder. He says, I want you, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's very quickly saying to the elders of the church at Philippi, which he knows is a good church, and he's commended to intervene and help them, quote, unquote, agree in the Lord. What's that mean? It means reconcile, work it out. And this is not that they will come to a complete agreement where one person says, I was wrong and you were right, but they will agree to disagree at the bare minimum and love one another in a way that speaks to the gospel of Jesus. And while the leaders are leading well, the followers are making it easy on the leaders by being willing to follow their lead toward reconciliation. Look at Hebrews 13, 16 through 17. It says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In other words, be a loving community. And then he randomly steps right into this statement about leadership. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I selfishly, as a pastor, I want to put this on my door so that when people walk through, I ask the question, hey, are you, are you aiming towards reconciliation when you come in here to complain about your brother or sister in Christ? Because I'm not here to get an email from you to tell, tell me how bad the other person in our church is. That is not in my job description. What I am here for is when you both come to me and say, hey, Hans, hey, Patrick, we can't seem to work out our conflict. Would you help us settle it? Because we know that our gospel witness as brothers or sisters in Christ is in danger. Would you please assist us in doing that and being ready to work? Finding time in your schedule to work, making it a priority to work to reconcile. Now, let me give two quick caveats, and I'm almost done. In the case of blatant and empirically substantiated physical, mental, sexual, emotional, or spiritual abuse, 
Please do not hear me saying that the abused party should give in to the abuser for the sake of reconciliation or the gospel. I am not saying that at all. Abusive husbands, abusive leaders, they often will require this and they'll twist scripture to say this, but that's not what it says. If there is empirical abuse occurring, it needs to be dealt with, and Patrick and I and the future elders will deal with it quickly. If you are being abused, please come talk to us so we can assist you in stepping out of that abuse. Second caveat, in the case of leaders who are leading unjustly, remember that this is why we have congregational authority. Patrick and I and the future elders, the elder candidates, will be submitting to you, uh, we will be submitting them to you for a vote in July. None of us have the final authority. The congregation does. You do. What you can do is you can follow the same rules of impartiality and discipline and go to an elder directly when you have a problem with them, as in Matthew 18. And if they do not listen, go to another elder and enlist their help. And if all the elders don't listen, then the next step, dear church, will not be for us to write you off or blackball you. It's for you to stand before the entire congregation of the church and state to them how we have wronged you and acted unjustly. And if the congregation says, you're right, then we bow the knee to Jesus and submit to the authority of the congregation and say, we need to repent and we fix it. That is a healthy church, or at least it's a model that sets up a healthy church. But what that does is it also limits you. If you're a person that goes, I just am mad at an elder, it makes you stand up to the plate and say, have they acted justly or unjustly? It's a good system, and it's a system employed by God's people, Old Testament and New. Okay, so then, what's the application for us today in this odd text in Deuteronomy? Well, I really hope that we will not be dealing with homicides or charges of stealing anytime soon. I hope that we won't be dealing with a lot of these things that have been talked about. I really hope we never have to step into a 1 Corinthians 5 situation. Please, please help me on that one. Can you guys help me on that one? Don't have sexual relations with your step-parents, okay? We good there? All right. But the one thing that we will deal with and we already deal with and we have been dealing with for eight years is conflict in the church. Any church that says they don't have conflict in their midst is ignoring it. And God has given us leaders, just as he did Israel, to help work through that conflict. So our application today is, church, let's be a church full of people striving for justice within the way we treat one another. Let's start cutting out the sarcasm and the passive-aggressive comments and the triangulation where we try and get people on our side in the midst of conflicts. Let's just kill it completely. And when conflict arises, let's be a church that aims for restoration and reconciliation so that our gospel witness that Christ is our King and Savior is not tarnished. For many in here today, your application is simply to start viewing the church in this way we've described today, as a community of Christ's people, not a consumer product that you can hop around from church to church and take part in. Some of you who are visiting today, plug into your local church, this one or another one. Stop hopping around. Be known by the people in your church. Because the church is a community of Christ's people living out his reign in the way we treat one another and serve one another, and serve non-believers outside our church, all to the proclamation that he is our king and savior. If you're a visitor today and you don't know Jesus, this is what Jesus requires of you. I know this is not as great as the marketing ploy of a lot of pastors. God has a great plan for your life. Just know him and it'll go, go well. Try him out for a few weeks. See how it goes. That's garbage. And if any pastor ever says that, then they will one day have to deal with the true judge. The gospel is that Jesus is king and he requires of you your life. And he'll require it today in grace and mercy because he died on the cross for your sins or he will require it at the end of days where he sends you off into eternal torment away from him. Which do you prefer? I would beg of you to come talk to us today about what it is to follow Christ, the merciful and benevolent and loving God. And all of us today, whether we are actively involved in a conflict or not, and praise God, 99% of you are not, and that's awesome. We can reaffirm our commitment to be a church that leads and follows injustice, making the commitment before the conflict occurs 
so that when it occurs, it makes it much more likely that if we are confronted, we will deal with it in humility and we will deal with it in justice. So brothers and sisters, I want you to ask yourselves today, whether you're a leader or a follower, whether this is something you need to recommit to, I want to ask you whether or not you are committed to this view of the church. If you are a person in active conflict with your spouse or your friend or anyone else in this church, I am calling you today to not step up to the table of communion until you've gone to that person and affirmed your commitment to them and to Christ that you want to find a way to reconcile. And if you are unable to do so on your own, then come to Patrick or I so that we can begin walking with you on that journey. And then go to the table of communion together and agree in the Lord, even if you haven't figured out all the pieces of your conflict. Agree in the Lord knowing you are committed to working out the details of your conflict and you will never leave one another nor forsake one another. An obedient church has leaders who lead and members who follow in justice. Mission Fellowship, let's be that obedient church. Amen? Amen.